One of the many significant things that happened at the crucifixion of Jesus and right at the moment of his death is something that isn't maybe talked about a whole lot, but it is extremely significant. And so this morning, I want us to focus on that. It's recorded in three of the four Gospels. Mark chapter 15, verse 37 through 39 puts it this way. So this is good for us to think about as we enter into this week and we're thinking about all that Jesus went through up until his crucifixion and then at his crucifixion. And of course, a week from today, we'll be celebrating the fact that Jesus conquered death and rose again. But in Mark 15, 37, it says this, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite Jesus saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Why are we spending so much time over these last several weeks teaching about the tabernacle and the temple and the sacrificial system and all of these things. Maybe for some of you it seems a little monotonous or boring or you might think, well, what has that got to do with us today? But God was using all of these things as an object lesson to teach not only them back then, but for all of us since that time, helping us to understand something about himself and something about ourselves, and most of all, something about Jesus. You see, the very presence of the tabernacle that God had designed and told them to build, it was both a symbol of separation, but it was also a symbol of nearness. God was teaching them, I want to be near you, and I want you to be near me, but I am holy, and you are not. I'm righteous, and you are not, and so though we're not able to dwell exactly together in this moment, I want to show you my heart, and I want you to see what I am doing to provide a way that you can be near me, and we can be together. The people understood that they couldn't fully live up to everything that God had given them in their laws. And that really was what God wanted them to understand. He wanted them to understand, this is the way I want you to live. It's, it's, a, it's a best way to live because I designed you. If the society that I have given you, if you'll operate this way, you'll, you'll be the happiest, you'll be the healthiest. But as we read in the story of the scriptures, like all of us, we tend to want to go our own way, don't we? After a while, it's like, well, that might be good for somebody there. That might be good for you, but I want to do things my way. And God was helping them understand this is the stubbornness of our human nature, our sin nature, our unrighteousness. And we hear a lot of, um, a lot of these words spoken today in the news media. Justice, equality, equity, right? We hear those words a lot. And for some of you, even hearing those words, it gets you kind of riled up a little bit because it's going down this whole political thing that unless you believe this way and you buy into these things, then you're not really for social justice. You're not really for equality. You're not really for equity. And then the desire to try to bring everybody together to say this is what we need to do to have social justice and equality and equity 
Are we, more to, are we more together now than we've ever been? No, it's just bringing more division, more and more division. Because this is man's way, this is humanity's way, it's not God's way. God's justice, God's equality, God's design, his equity is what we all need to be striving for. And he provides it. He provides it through his presence and he provides it through his son, Jesus Christ. We know that the tabernacle, this is really important. We know that the tabernacle was actually an object lesson from God because God is the one who instructed Moses how to build it, what it would look like, what materials to use. This was not Moses' idea. This wasn't something that somebody made up and said, well, let's try to figure out who God is, and then this is what we'll do. In fact, while Moses was up on the mountain communing with God and getting the instructions from God about how to worship him and who he was, Aaron and the people were down below getting impatient, and they did make a God of their own creation, right? A golden calf, and they were partying and worshiping it. That was their creation of God. God was with Moses saying they got it all wrong. I want you to teach something about me and my love and my desire to be near you and you to be near me, and yet also there's this separation, separation and nearness. So we read in Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. In your online sermon notes, if you've got those, uh, I encourage you to sign up for those so you'll get those through the, the text and you can click on that. I've got all these complete verses, but uh, today when the slide's on the screen, I just have some portions of them. Also, by the way, if you like that video that you just watched in the online sermon notes, there's links that you can watch those videos and some additional information uh, links that are there. Exodus chapter 25, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. I love that. Jesus, or, or I'm, God had every right to demand that everybody give, but he didn't do that. He said, I want to be of their own free will. It needs to come from a willing heart. Again, God was teaching us something about him. He could absolutely force us to do things, but in his love, he wants us to choose to love him in return. And so God had blessed them when they left Egypt uh, out of those several hundred years of captivity. The people in Egypt had given them a lot of their possessions and said, just leave, just leave, just go. And so they did have a lot of things that they could share and give. And so this is what God was referring to. Verse 3, these are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins, dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastpiece. In the last few weeks, you've heard Pastor Eric teach on this about the clothing that the high priest wore and the stones that each stone represented a different tribe of Israel and the high priest was representing these people before God. This is what God's referring to here of getting all of these things given as a free will. Verse 8, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. He, he didn't need to do this. He's God. He's all-encompassing he created this grand universe that we still don't fully comprehend. He didn't need to have a house to live in. 
but he wanted to teach them something. Again, this is an object lesson. Get that in your mind. God was teaching us all something. I want to be near you. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Have you ever read the Old Testament and you're reading about all of the, the articles of the tabernacle and how it was to be designed and there's so many cubits of this long and then there's this and there's that? And I read that and I'm like, how in the world, how in the world did Moses know what God was talking about? Well, this tells us that God was not only giving him the detailed verbal instructions, but he gave Moses the blueprint for the tabernacle. He showed him, he got the artist's rendition he got to see what the final tabernacle was to look like. So Moses knew exactly what it was to look like and exactly the dimensions because God had given him all of these things. And so, in fact, we see in Exodus chapter 26, verse 30, it says that God spoke to Moses and he said this, set up the tabernacle according to the plan shown you on the mountain. The plan that I showed you. This all was God's design, God's idea. Why? Because it was an object lesson, not only for them back then, but for us today. Here's something I want us to think about. Go ahead, I think I've got a slide of a diagram. Um, there we go. So this is just kind of like an overhead view. You saw the video that had the really beautiful imagery of, of what the stuff uh, probably looked like. This is just a simple diagram. Because I want you to understand that the tabernacle was teaching people not only about God's desire to be near us, but that there was a separation between us and him. But he also wanted to teach us that there are obstacles to getting to him, but he turns those obstacles into opportunities. So it contained both obstacles and opportunities. So this is why I want you to look at the diagram and I want you to think about this. When they went into the courtyard and they came to the bronze altar, that was an obstacle. They could not get to God unless they went past the bronze altar. But it was an opportunity because God said, here's a way you can get near to me. I want a sacrifice to be offered on this altar. And now it's not an obstacle anymore. It's an opportunity to be forgiven, to come into my presence. The laver, the wash basin was an obstacle that kept people from going on into the, the tabernacle. But it was also an opportunity. It was an opportunity to be cleansed and to be shown through my cleansing, you can serve me. You can come close to me. I'll make your life useful. This is what God was teaching through these objects. The entrance to the tabernacle was a curtain, later doors, but it wasn't a wall. It wasn't a wall that God said, I'm in here and you can't get to me and I'm not coming to you. We're, we're separated. No, it was a doorway. So for some, it was an obstacle but it was an opportunity, wasn't it? The door could be open. God was saying, I don't want to shut you out. I want you to come and be with me. In fact, when you went into the holy place, there was symbols of that. There was the lampstand that we saw, which was filled with oil representing the Holy Spirit, and then the flames, which, was, which brought forth light and warmth, and that was representing the truth of God's word that shines in a spiritually dark world that is groping out there looking for answers, and God says, I've given you the answers, it's in my word. You're, you're just, you're not, you're not noticing, you're not learning. And then the table of showbread that was there, which had the 12 loaves of unleavened bread, each loaf represented one of the tribes of Israel, God telling the people, I want you to dine with me. 
I want to hang out. I want to have a meal with you. I want you to come to my table. When we see Jesus in the New Testament talking about God's invitation to come to his banqueting table, he was using imagery from the temple. All of these things God was using as an object lesson for us to understand something about himself and his desire to be with us, but what we needed to do to respond to that love and that invitation so that we could be in his presence and survive. Then there was the altar of incense. That was an obstacle before you could go into the Holy of Holies, and it represented prayer because continually the incense went up before the Holy of Holies, and it represented our prayers going up to God. But it had to be a specific type of incense, representing that there's only certain kinds of prayer that really are going to open the way for us to God. I'll just fast forward and let you know that's a prayer of repentance. That's a prayer of humility. It's a prayer of saying, God, I'm tired of arguing with you. I'm sorry I've argued with you. You're right. I'm wrong. You're God. I'm not. Please forgive me. Help me to come into your presence. And of course, we're going to get to this, that it's through Jesus. That's the kind of prayer that's acceptable to God that helps us to enter into his presence. So that incense had to be a certain kind of incense, a certain kind of fire offered there. But if that was done, it was no longer an obstacle. It was an opportunity. And then that final barrier, that final obstacle, the veil the heavy curtain that was between the holy place and the most holy place, the holy of holies, where God said his presence would dwell above the Ark of the Covenant, representing all of God's laws and that there need to be sacrifices made and blood applied because we've broken all those laws. But God's offering a way of forgiveness and redemption and atonement so that we can be forgiven for breaking those laws. All of that was contained in that Ark. And God said, my presence is going to dwell right above that Ark right there. Because I want you to see this is the way to me. You've sinned, but I'm offering forgiveness and grace. But you need to do it my way. The things that you think are obstacles are actually opportunities. Because I want to be in relationship with you. And I want you to be in relationship with me. But that veil, that final thing, again, it wasn't a wall. It was a doorway. So what seemed like an obstacle was an opportunity to come into the very presence of God. And that is why it's so significant that when Jesus died, the temple, that final curtain between the holy place and the most holy place was torn in two. God was sending a clear message. The scripture tells us in Exodus chapter 26 about the design of this final curtain, this veil that we refer to. And again, when, when we talk about this curtain, this veil, we're talking about the one between the holy place and the most holy place. So in Exodus 26, 31 through 33, it says this, make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. There was symbolism in all of that, but we won't get into that this morning. And finally, twisted linen with cherubim worked into it by a skillful craftsman. So this wasn't some just flimsy little drape. This was a heavy curtain. There's different theories about how thick it was and all these things. The point is, it was a heavy, well-made curtain. Hang it with gold hooks on four posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold and standing on four silver bases. Hang the curtain from the clasps in place of the ark uh, of the testimony behind the curtain. The curtain will be separate or the curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. 
From other scriptures, we learn that those posts that were put in there were 10 cubits long or 10 cubits high. And again, depending on a cubit was the measurement from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger. There were a couple of different kinds of cubits. The point is, it was approximately 15 feet tall. That's how tall this curtain was. Just go with that, okay? So we don't have to be exact. You get the idea. So it was a big, tall, heavy curtain. And only the high priest could go through that veil once a year on the Day of Atonement. It seemed like an obstacle, but it was an opportunity. God was saying, I want you to be with me. And so he even set up not only the sacrificial system, but the whole concept of a high priest was to teach us something that we just can't rush into God's presence on our own. There has to be someone, something that represents us to a holy and righteous God. And even the high priest had to offer sacrifices for himself before he could uh, serve and represent the people. You see, God was teaching again his desire to be near people, and yet there was a separateness. Something had to be taken care of for us to come into his presence. Isaiah, the prophet in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, identifies this. He says, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. He's saying, God has been speaking to you. He wants a relationship with you. But then he says this, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. So we've all messed up. And so though God wants to be near us and we may want to be near him, there's something that needs to be taken care of first. What seems to be an obstacle, God turns into an opportunity. Over the centuries of Israel's history, the pattern of the tabernacle was copied as it progressed from being this tent that God told them to construct. And then later, once they got into the promised land that God promised them, they set it up there. But uh, over time and wear and tear, you know, it began to, to get frayed and so forth. And so David, when David came along as the king of Israel, he said, God, you're so awesome. You're so huge and big. And here we've got this tent that is kind of getting in disrepair. I want to build you a temple. God never told David to build him a temple. God never intended to live in a temple. Again, this tabernacle was a teaching lesson. It was an object lesson. But David, because he loved God and he, he wanted to honor him, so he started making plans to build a temple. And God said, okay, I'll, I'll let you build me a temple. But again, God did not tell David to build a temple. He just permitted it. So David collected all the material. And then at the end of David's reign, he wasn't able to build the temple. But his son Solomon, when he became king, he took all the materials that his dad had collected. He, he oversaw the work. And finally, a temple was built there in Jerusalem. And so the Ark of the Covenant went into the temple and... There again, the object lesson continued, but it followed the same pattern that God had given to Moses. Now, stay with me here. We're going to jump ahead centuries forward into the New Testament. And Stephen, chapter 7, verses 44 through 50. Our ancestors, Stephen said, had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. See the consistency of the scripture? After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them into the, uh, brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. 
It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. You see, God didn't tell him to do it. David just wanted to do it because he loved God. And he's like, God, you're so awesome. And, you know, we've got this old shabby tent over here and we're living in homes better now. So let me build you a temple. But look at what Stephen says in verse 48. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? It's almost like God's chuckling. Like, seriously? You want me to live in that? I mean, I'm out here. I've got all this grand stuff that you all don't even know about. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? So again, the temple that Solomon built was based on the same pattern in the tabernacle, so God was still teaching a lesson through that, though he clearly wasn't intending to live there forever or to dwell there. It was just a place that he wanted the people to connect with him. So God works through history, and he works through nations. We read in the Old Testament primarily about God working through the nation of Israel because that's the story of God's chosen people, but God was working through other nations and other people. And so when the nation of Israel, even though they had this object lesson and they were learning about how God wanted them to live, they decided after a while, you know what, God, this has been fun, this has been nice, but we want to be like the other nations. And so they started adapting some of their principles and some of their practices. And before long, they started drifting away from God again. And God warned them. He sent prophets. He's like, you all, you're missing it. You had that life before. I've given you a better way. You've been blessed. And then after you blessed, you got lazy and you started looking for other things. So God started raising up other nations. He's like, I'm the God of all nations. And they don't even know if I'm using them or not, but I'm going to use them. And so he raised up the nation of Babylon. And Babylon came in and they conquered the Israelite people because they were stubborn and they weren't, they were just going through the motions at the tabernacle at that point. They weren't really worshiping God or loving God. They were just going through the motions. So God's like, okay, I want more than that. So not only did Babylon come in and carry many of the Israelites off captive, they destroyed Solomon's temple. Gone. Now God's like, okay, you're going to go through the motions now because all that stuff's gone. They were carried off into captivity 70 years later. God said, okay, I think you've learned your lesson. It's time for you to go back. So God raises up another nation. It was the kingdom of Persia, which is modern-day Iran. They defeated the Babylonians. They became the world power. And so the king of Persia at that time said, you all can go back to your homeland, build your temple if you want, do whatever. He did that not only for Israel. He did that for some of the other nations. That was his, that, the king at that time, Cyrus. It was his ruling style. He still wanted tribute and stuff, but he said, you can go back. So that's what they did. They went back and they built another temple, and we read about this in Ezra. In fact, there's three Old Testament books where you can read about this. Zechariah, Haggai, and Ezra is all written during that time when all this was going on. They go back. They build a second temple now because the first temple had been destroyed. The tabernacle was going, hear me in this now. The object lessons were gone, but they went ahead and they built this second temple. It was smaller than Solomon's temple, but it still followed the same pattern, and it was placed in the exact same place where the original temple had been built. This is important for something I'm about to share with you. So centuries later, 
when Rome became the world power, then Rome appointed a man named Herod to kind of be the overseer, the king, the governor, however you want to call, of Judea and that region. And he wanted to solidify his favor with the Jewish people and his political power. So he helped fund taking that second temple and he elaborated on it. He refurbished it. He built it. It became a huge temple. Again, this now was not really God's pattern. It was added to, but the teaching was still there because the people still came and they offered their sacrifices at the burnt altar and they still went in and they had the menorah and they had the table of showbread, but it wasn't the original objects that existed in the original tabernacle. Those had long been gone. In fact, the coveted Ark of the Covenant was not there. When Babylon had come and captured the nation of Israel and they destroyed the temple, we're not sure what happened to it. Nothing historically tells us it's a mystery. Many people believe that the priests, when they saw that the Babylonians were coming, they didn't want those articles to be disrespected, so they hid them. But here's the fact and here's the truth. In that second temple that the people built, they had the holy place that had the menorah and the table of showbread and the altar of incense, but in the holy of holies, there was no Ark of the Covenant. Well, wasn't that where God's presence was supposed to dwell? What's going on? Well, Ezekiel had a vision during the time when Babylon was coming in. God gave him a vision, and he saw a vision of God's presence over the Ark of the Covenant rising up out of the Holy of Holies and leaving the tabernacle and leaving Jerusalem, and God got out of town. <laughs> He's like, these people are not serious about worshiping me. They haven't learned from the lesson, so I'm departing this place. And so it was from that time, even when the people came back and they built the new second temple, there was no Ark of the Covenant there, but they were still going through the motions. And this is something I learned in preparing for this message I, because it, it struck me. I'm like, well, if there was no... Ark of the Covenant, and if that's where on the Day of Atonement the blood had to be applied to the Ark of the Covenant during Jesus' time, so I'm going to fast forward now, because again, the Ark wasn't there at the second temple that was built, and it certainly wasn't there when Herod rebuilt the temple. There was replicas of everything else, but they wouldn't make a replica of the Ark of the Covenant, no way. So when Jesus taught, and we read about in Mark, Matthew, Luke, John, and Acts, the temple that is describing was a temple that didn't have any Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. Where was the blood applied? That's what the high priest was supposed to do. Well, what in my research, what I found was because it was built on the same site, the priest, when he would go in once a year and he would do everything they were supposed to do, he would go into the holy place. Now there's no Ark of the Covenant there, but because that was where God's presence was, was supposed to dwell, he would take the blood of the sacrifice and there was like a foundation stone. There was an area there because remember it was built on the same site. And so he would basically sprinkle the blood on the foundation stone where the ark used to sit all those centuries ago. This may get deep for some of you. I'm not trying to insult your intelligence. But this is what is amazing about what God was teaching. Atonement could no longer be provided in that tabernacle. Though it was a teaching tool and an object lesson but what was God doing now through Jesus? He had now come among them. He was saying, my presence left all that 
but I didn't really leave you. You've been part of my plan, and people on earth have been part of my plan. And so he came into this world that he created, and he took on a flesh and blood temple. And he carried the blood of the sacrifice in his own body. And he lived a perfect, sinless life. He fulfilled all of the old covenant law. And now he was walking among them. They were looking for the Ark of the Covenant in the holy place, and the most holy one was walking among them. And this is why Jesus got festered at the Pharisees. And he told them, you all are going through the motions. You don't understand. It's all the Old Testament scriptures that speak of me, that teach about this. And here I am among you, and you don't even recognize me. And you know what they said? Blasphemy! He claims to be the Son of God. Blasphemy! He was telling the truth. They were not learning from the object lesson. And so Jesus did so much through his life, through his teaching, and then through his sacrificial death on the cross. He was showing that he was fulfilling all of those things in the tabernacle. He was and is the high priest. He has the sacrifice. It's his own blood. It's not goat's blood. But the way to come to the Father is by trusting in the high priest that's provided the sacrifice on your behalf, his own body, his own blood. It's Jesus. And Jesus is both an obstacle, but he's an opportunity. You say, what? Jesus is an obstacle because there's many people that say, why should I believe in Jesus? There's a lot of other people. There's, what about all the other religions in the world? Who says they're wrong? Jesus. Oh, ouch, that's offensive. He's an obstacle, but he's also an opportunity. It's Jesus that said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So for many people, that becomes an obstacle because they don't want to believe. But for anybody that will come, it's not an obstacle. He's an opportunity. Whosoever will may come. Jesus says, I'm not going to exclude you. You just need to come through me. Don't exclude me. This is why it's so important to understand this commitment that we must have to Jesus above all else. There'll be plenty of other voices telling you you're wrong and this is wrong. Just like there were other nations telling the nation of Israel, your sacrificial system is wrong. We do it this way and we know God because we're worshiping him. And you just need to make up your mind who you're going to believe. Out of all those religions, there's only one that conquered death, our high priest Jesus. And that is why... When he died on the cross, the temple veil was torn in two because God's saying, if you all haven't got it yet, the ark's no longer here, the blood's not being applied on the ark anymore, stop doing this. He ripped the curtain open and he said, the real high priest is out there hanging on the cross. Trust in him. Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 16 prophesied about a day when the ark of the covenant wouldn't be used anymore to come for people to come to God. In Jeremiah 3.16, it says this, in those days when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, people will no longer say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. Hmm. And this was written by a Jewish man during a time when they had the ark of the covenant. God is clearly teaching us about Jesus. 
He is the one that came to represent us. And that's why we're making such a big deal about it over these last few weeks to help us understand maybe in a more clear way what it means to have Jesus as your high priest, your sacrifice, your savior, and that he is your Lord. Here's another account of this torn veil in Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 and 51. It says this, and when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, I got to wondering, how do they know at the moment that Jesus died that at that moment the temple was torn in two because they couldn't be two places at once. There were people that were kind of just outside the city there at the site of the crucifixion, and so they're seeing Jesus die. So they would know that he died in that moment about, well, really at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They, they had methods of telling time back then. They weren't, uh, you know, ignorant. They were smart people. So exactly at 3 in the afternoon is when Jesus breathed his last. But how did the people in the temple know that when the, the curtain was torn that it was 3 o'clock? Well, this is what I learned, and it was amazing to me. Twice a day, sacrifices were offered at the temple, 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. The morning sacrifices at 9 a.m. and then the evening sacrifices, even though it was afternoon, they considered that their evening, evening sacrifices at 3 p.m. Priests were in the temple. They had rejected Jesus. They weren't at his crucifixion. They weren't mourning. They were doing, they were going through the motions. They were doing their job, and it was time for the 3 o'clock sacrifice to be offered. And so they're in the temple at 3 o'clock, and there's an earthquake. And they might have at first thought that the earthquake did this, but stop and think about it. This is a curtain. It's a heavy curtain. I'm not going to go into all the details of it. An earthquake doesn't tear a curtain because, like, a curtain's flexible. <laughs> right? So the earth can shake, and the curtain's just going to do this. <laughs> but this literally, it said it was torn. It was like, it was ripped in two from top to bottom. Think about the priests. They must have freaked out. That's how they knew it was at 3 o'clock because they were doing their evening sacrifice. And then later they found out, oh, that was when Jesus, that was the moment he died. And that's why it's recorded in the scripture three different times. Here's the other amazing fact. The morning sacrifice was at 9. The evening sacrifice was at 3. Jesus was nailed to the cross at 9 o'clock in the morning. And he died at three. I mean, how much more does God have to do to show you, to show us that he has a plan and he is the God of details? It's not just circumstance. And he wants us to get it. He wants us to understand. So what did the tearing of the veil mean? Well, it meant that through Christ, a new way was being opened up for all of us to come to God. He wants to be near you, but there's a separation. It's our sin. But he's done something about that separation and that sin through our high priest Jesus, through the sacrifice of his perfect blood that he carried within himself. The high priest carried the blood of the sacrifice in his body, and then he poured it out on the cross, which is now... Uh, the, the site basically where the blood was applied on the Day of the Atonement and the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't in the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was hanging on the cross. And the blood was applied there. And he did it for you. And he did it for me. And he even did it for the people who were crucifying him because he knew that there would be some who believe. They would not see him as an obstacle 
but they would see him as an opportunity, the most wonderful opportunity. For God so loved the world that he gave. His only begotten son, that whoever. You want to talk about social justice? You want to talk about equality and equity? Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's God's justice. And it's so much better than any kind of justice we talk about. Luke writes later on in the New Testament in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, that many of the priests came to faith after this. It doesn't say why, but I just kind of have a feeling it was some of those priests in the temple. Like, we didn't see Jesus die, but we saw what God did in the temple. We don't want to miss this. He is showing us something. And they began to believe in the one that they had rejected and mocked. And I hope that gives you hope Because maybe up to this point, even listening to this message, you've kind of rejected, or you've kind of mocked, or you've kind of questioned, or you've doubted about Jesus. There's hope for you, because Jesus wants you to come to know him. That's our loving God. He's not going to force you, but he's inviting you. I want to represent you before God. Come to me. Put your trust in me. Jesus is our permanent high priest. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, Pastor Eric uh, mentioned a few of these verses last week. It says this, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, not a part of this creation. Again, this is so awesome. That tabernacle was simply an object lesson to teach us of the true things that God's doing for us in heaven and for all eternity. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption for us. We don't have to do it once a year. We have it for all eternity. This is not an excuse to sin, but when you trust Christ as your Savior and you're truly believing he is your high priest and he's your sacrifice and you have no hope of heaven other than Jesus and Jesus alone then that sacrifice, that atonement is good for all of your sins, past, present, and future, because that's what eternal means. It's not an excuse to go out and sin. Don't say, I've got my safety net, so now I'm going to go live however I want. You're just going to fall into the same trap that Israel did. And God loves you, and so he's going to discipline you. He's going to allow you to go through hardships because he's like, come on, you're my kid now. Stop living like that. But we have in Christ an eternal Redeemer, high priest. Jesus represents us in heaven. In Hebrews 9, 23 and 24, it says this. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. I just love this. Again, it's just reiterating over and over. The tabernacle was just a copy of the true thing. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. That's why the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy and he says, for there's one God and one mediator between God and man, not two, not five, not 20, one God, one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people, everyone. This has now been witnessed at the proper time So what's our response? Here it is. And this is what I close with today. Hebrews 10, 19 through 23. 
Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. See, that's what he wants. Sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. There's again all that imagery in the object lesson of coming to God. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. Would you stand? So is that your response? He did all this to teach us about Jesus. Some will see Jesus as an obstacle. They'll reject him. They'll think it can't be true. They'll think there's another way. They see Jesus as an obstacle. They'll criticize Christianity. They'll criticize Christians. But for others, we see Jesus as an opportunity. He's the opportunity to be forgiven, have a home in heaven forever with God, the one who created us. Lord, as we come to the conclusion of this particular moment in time, I thank you that, Jesus, you offered an invitation that all may come to you, but they need to do it your way, not their way. So help those who are listening to this message now to not see you as an obstacle, but to see you as an opportunity to come into a relationship with their creator God who loves them and gives them a choice. And it was given everything for them. Just help us, Lord, to offer that prayer of incense, that acceptable prayer. Lord, I'm a sinner and I'm so sorry. Forgive me. I humble myself before you. I ask you to come into my life. Fill me with your spirit. Lord, help me to walk a new way. Help me to stop living with the way that I thought was right and your way says is wrong. Help me, Lord, to, to surrender my life to you and, and to trust you. And then empower me, Lord, that I might honor you with my life. Thank you for being my high priest. Thank you for offering the sacrifice of your blood. Thank you for being my eternal redeemer. I will forever be grateful and give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. As we sing this closing song, if you want to come to the front and pray or have me pray with you, the invitation is open. So come. You are the word at the beginning, one with God, the Lord most high. You're hidden. Great, we love.
has. So give the Lord, give the Lord the glory. Give him praise. He is awesome. We, Jesus, Jesus, thank you. You are the most awesome high priest. Thank you for your word that teaches us. Thank you for allowing me to share the message once again. Thank you for Pastor Eric and Adam and our staff here. Thank you for the people, Lord. We know you don't dwell in this place made with men's hands. You dwell in our hearts as we open our life to you through Christ. So thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Send us out today with a sense of hope, a sense of encouragement. And as we think about all that you suffered, Lord, help us to think about the things we have learned. And may it draw us into a closer relationship with you, Lord, more appreciating and wanting to live in a way that honors you because of your great love for us in your name. Amen. God bless you all. Have a great week.